0: So this uh, Sunday we are lifting up the work of our Black Lives Matter Task Force uh, here at Bradford and we will be hearing from two of our members um, this morning. And first we're going to welcome Gail Clark-Taylor who has acted as Task Force Chair. Good morning. Good morning.
1: morning. I've entitled this section of the services, why do I do this work, this work of anti-racism? And first the honest, most of you already know that my wife and I have adopted a black child who will be 21 tomorrow. (laughs) But loving her doesn't explain why I am interested in doing the work to dismantle racism. Her adoption doesn't even initiate my start down this path. When Penny was two months old, we took her to a women's retreat with us. And there we met a social worker from Chicago who was familiar with the hospital and the projects where Penny was born. The social worker held her in her arms and looked down and cried. Eventually she told us, you don't know what you've saved her from. I was blown away by this coming from a black woman. At the same time, I was feeling terribly guilty because my motivations for adopting a black baby was simply to get a baby into my arms as soon as possible. I knew I'd have to wait at least three years to get a white baby. It was all about my desire for a baby and not about what I could do for her or the kind of life I could provide. At this time, I was also aware of the controversy surrounding white folks adopting black babies but I naively believe that the middle class life that I could provide for her would counteract all that. She has had some opportunities that she would not have had if raised by her birth mother, but those opportunities have nothing to do with the institutionalized systemic structures that she has and will encounter. In my career as a school counselor, I've often been involved with black students and their parents who believe they are being discriminated against because of the color of their skin. I'm ashamed to admit that I defended my actions and actions of other staff members, telling them this was only about your kids' behavior. I can't begin to count the number of times that I've denied the reality of their lives and, in effect, told them that I knew better than they did. I was pretty clueless until 2007 when I read Witnessing Whiteness. I began to discuss these issues with other like-minded people and only then did I really begin to understand the extent of my white privilege and the devastating results that lack of privilege has on persons of color. I'd always been uncomfortable when another staff member would tell a parent that I had adopted a black child as evidence that I was not racist. I now realize that my discomfort was due to my realization that loving someone black does not automatically free you from prejudice. I recently read George Yancey's Dear White America essay in which he says, and I'm paraphrasing him, don't tell me about the, bla- the many black friends you have. Don't tell me you are married to someone of color or love your black grandchild. You may have never used the N-word or hate the KKK, but that does not mean you don't harbor racism and benefit from racism. To prove this point, I have often go to the Project Implicit website, Harvard's Test of Bias. At first, I was astounded to find that I strongly preferred white persons over persons of color. After all, I think Penny is the most beautiful girl in the world. And as soon as we knew we were going to be adopting a black child, I began to think that white babies were not so interesting to look at. (laughs) Since that point, I've gone to the website many times, dozens of times. And not every time I still come out as preferring whites and associating positive attributes with whites. I struggle hard to associate, in this test, to associate positive attributes with blacks. Even my understanding of the insidious nature of the training all of us received doesn't go very, very far to undo my racism and bias as far as this test is concerned. Despite the reading I've done, the seminars and conferences I've attended, the courageous conversations I've been a part of, I still automatically react from my unconscious acculturation. I am working on developing the habit of asking myself, would I be reacting this way or feeling this way if this was about a white person rather than a black person? My awareness did not start with Penny. But she is the face representing every black person in America. If Penny deserves more, so do all who are judged solely on the color of their skin and will never enjoy the benefits that we, with white privilege, take for granted.
0: Now, uh, invite forward our second Black Lives Matter Task Force member, David Lockwood, to share about his experience. Good
2: morning. Good morning. morning. I'm going to give you three reasons why I joined the Black Lives Matter Task Force and will continue to participate in its mission, likely for the rest of my life. Number one, not unlike Gail's story, uh, Danny and I have uh, two sons, Pete who was white Brian who was black and I noticed from a very early age like five, six years old when we would go into stores the shopkeepers would watch Brian like a hawk, not Pete who was older uh, watch him like a hawk and this happened whether we were known in the store or not known in the store, or in where we lived or somewhere else and I told him Brian watch, those, watch the shopkeepers see if they're looking at you and he said they're looking at me and that continued you know, all of his life but that's, I said, you need to know that you're being targeted. Not that you would steal anything, but if you did, you'd get caught. Pete would get away. <laughs> and uh, So then when he got to middle school, uh, there was an altercation. Him, three, three kids, a white girl, a, a white boy, and Brian. And there were no witnesses. No one was touched. There were hurtful words exchanged. The girl got no punishment. The white boy got a three-day suspension in school. And Brian got a ten-day suspension out of school. It's pretty serious. Um, And then when he became a teenager uh, and was driving, we all shared the same car, Danny, me, Brian. He must have gotten stopped six times by the police for things like your taillight is out. Danny and I never got stopped. And they tried to bait him. So, you know, just had to teach him that you're being targeted, okay? Point number two, in January 2016, I gave a service with the help of the RE kids. So, Will was involved, and and Maureen, and and Rachel, and Esteban, and Dominic, and the the title was Unitarian Universalists, a History of Resistance. All right? And uh, the class and I gave a rapid history of how UUs have stood up at several critical points in American history, uh, including uh, using reason to interpret the Bible, you'll remember Channing's Baltimore Sermon, right? Yes, you do. <laughs> uh, abolition, women's suffrage, prohibition, defying the Nazis, civil rights, LGBT rights, and, uh, and then ending with a discussion about which female Disney characters are the best role model for girls. Now who remembers the service? <laughs> yeah. So you'll remember Sleeping Beauty and Snow White were just kind of laying there and, and to be rescued by princes. And then Ariel and Belle and Jasmine sort of had a little bit of backbone. And then finally Tiana and Pocahontas and Mulan were actual great role models. Okay, so I mentioned all of that to get to the, the statement that I gave to close the service, which was this. This program makes the statement that UU history is a history of resistance against favoritism and discrimination. What is the next great contribution that UU's could be making? Are you, as you look around you, do you see something that you should be standing up for? In the next month, meaning January 2016, UU's everywhere will be focused on a call by the UUA to resist racism, including via Black Lives Matter movement. Is this cause worthy of our commitment and attention? It's up to you. Number two. And then number three, um, as some of you know, I'm, I'm a researcher, I research a lot. And what we know is that the gap between rich and poor is greater than it has ever been except 1928, just before the Great Depression. And those are studies by Federal Reserve and many other people. Gap between rich and poor. And that is where the real battle should be centered on. But at the epicenter of that is black people. So even if you look at just average families, not wealthy families, just average families, white families have seven times more wealth than black families do. And then there are five times as many white people in this country as black people. Five times as many, yet in our prison system there are more black people than white people. That to me is shocking. And uh, shocking me to say that these words, that we as a society have decided to hunt and destroy black families, that's hard to say. And how can anyone not see the truth in this? As I have been looking into this uh, uh, and talking to people about it for the past few years, I've come to believe that this is a situation that each and every white person benefits from, whether they want to or not, and that it cannot be changed unless whites decide that destroying black families must end. Now, how we can change a racist culture, I don't know, but I know that the first step is that whites need to reach out to blacks and say that we care. We must, or maybe we need to build a new culture, one person, one conversation at a time. Maybe that's the way to do it. It may not fully happen in our lifetimes, but all the more reason to start now. Thank you.
0: Thank you David and thank you Gail for your testimonies. Of course we are talking today about the work of this congregation and our faith in general in the area of racial justice, especially the work of our Black Lives Matter task force and the National Black Lives of New News movement. And uh, as David David so aptly put it, despite far greater equality in laws across the country, and despite the over 50 years we've lived free of legal segregation, and despite a growing percentage of Americans who are non-white, We still have more black men aged 18 to 25 in jail or prison than in college. African American families control less than 5% of the wealth of their white American counterparts. And that figure has actually dropped uh, by half in the last decade. We still rely on property taxation for our public education, drastically disadvantaging lower-income, higher-density urban populations, which are often predominantly black or Latino-Latina. We consistently uh, assess property values based on archaic and racist redlining practices that were developed in the 1950s. And black families are ten times more likely to develop health issues from pollution in their neighborhoods than white families with the exact same income level. Now we Unitarian Universalists do, do indeed have dreams of racial equity and have, at least in part, for some time. We laud our ancestors who were some of the spiritual and political leaders of the abolitionist movement and a century later the civil rights movement. We have a long history of good white people those with both the privilege and power necessary to effectively align with our African-American brethren, as well as the compassionate inclination to do so. We often point to those in our spiritual lineage who made sacrifices to effect positive change. Bronson Alcott, tutor to the Emersons of Concord, who not only founded the first integrated school on this continent, but also withstood gunshots as he and his wife sheltered an escaped slave. We speak of Unitarian minister, Theodore Parker, who preached against the passing of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 and influenced the language found in Lincoln's Gettysburg Address and later the Emancipation Proclamation, and even later the I Have a Dream speech we laud our brother John Brown for his radical crusade against slavery and hold as sacred the sacrifice of fellow civil rights martyr the Reverend James Reed. We speak highly of the association of UUA President and Minister Dana Greeley with Martin Luther King Jr. and the huge percentage of our ministers who marched in solidarity with King in Selma and Birmingham. We can truly and proudly proclaim that the racial landscape of the United States would be far worse off than it is had our ancestors not taken some very bold, sometimes dangerous, stands for the cause of equity, justice, and compassion in human relations. But, there's always a but, right? The famed intellectual W.E.B. Du Bois once wrote, One is astonished in the study of history at the recurrence of the idea that evil must be forgotten, distorted, skimmed over. We must not remember that Daniel Webster got drunk, but only that he was a splendid constitutional lawyer. We must forget that George Washington was a slave owner and simply remember the things we regard as credible and inspiring. The difficulty, Du Bois goes on, with this philosophy is that history loses its value as an incentive and example. It paints perfect man and noble nations, but does not tell the truth." Dr. Du Bois is warning that it does not behoove us to only look to the heroes of our past, forsaking the realities for the preservation of the good. We often don't remember that much of the power base of 19th century Unitarianism was funded by the New England textile industry, which relied entirely, entirely on slave-produced cotton to survive, or the shipbuilding industry that bolstered many of our New England churches for centuries did indeed help produce the boats that would carry slaves from the Caribbean to these shores on the last terrifying leg of the Triangle trade. Though we remember Parker's vehement condemnation of the Fugitive Slave Act, we forget that the president who signed the bill into law in 1850 was our fellow Unitarian Millard Fillmore, whose presidency is remembered for little else. We so often don't recount the other stories of Dana Greeley, who repeatedly discouraged seminarians of color from becoming ordained in the UU faith because he felt our churches were not ready to accept black clergy. And Dr. Greeley, who presided over the black empowerment controversy of the late 1960s, that saw over half of our UUs of color leave the faith never to return. And we seem to forget even just over one year ago when the administration of the Unitarian Universalist Association was criticized for failing to employ more managers of color in lieu of straight white male ministers. And rather than address the issue, our three highest paid executives, all straight white men, all straight white ministers, resign and negotiated their own severance packages which totaled in excess of $300,000. Yes, like the history of any movement, ours is punctuated with the acts of both heroic and cowardly people. And we would be wise to celebrate the former and acknowledge and mourn the latter. And we are unfortunately still a predominantly homogeneous faith. Now, a minister friend of mine, the Reverend Dr. Mark Morrison-Reed, wrote a book about two of our earliest Unitarian ministers, Ethelred Brown and Louis McGee, both of whom ministered to communities of color and both of whom were shut off from the institutional support they needed and deserved. Now, Ethelred Brown was born in Jamaica and he found our faith through reading a pamphlet by Channing and wanted to bring our rational, liberal faith to his home. After attending Meadville Theological Seminary, which is a precursor to the modern day Meadville Lombard Theological School, where I and many of our ministers have studied, Brown would become our first black minister. He was ordained just over 100 years ago. I think it was 1913. Reverend Brown would go on to found three Unitarian churches, first in Montego Bay, and then in Kingston, Jamaica, and then in the Harlem neighborhood of Manhattan. He would go on to serve the Harlem church for 35 years, and despite consistent attendance, growing membership, and the church becoming one of the true epicenters of the Harlem Renaissance, Brown's church would never be fully acknowledged or supported by the Unitarian Universalist movement. The church would not survive Brown's ministry and in his death in 1956, we lost one of our most direct connections to and ministries with black Unitarians. And what is perhaps most frustrating about this story is our resistance to the work of one of our own. Egbert Ethelred Brown found us. He sought us out when he could not reconcile the Trinitarian arguments of his home church. He resonated with our insistence that the divine is one and that we are called to live up to the human ideals of forgiveness and compassion as exemplified by the man known as Jesus of Nazareth. He worked double shifts as an accountant in Jamaica for years to save enough money to travel to the United States for seminary, which he completed in a lightning fast, two years. And he jumped at doing the work our association was reluctant to do, spreading our brand of liberal religion to people of color in two countries. But throughout his ministry, Brown would get little to no support from the religion as a whole. The American Unitarian Association initially funded his ministry efforts in Jamaica, but quickly tightened their purse strings when in three years they did not see an adequate return on their investment. They tolerated the church in Harlem, but it was never the site of a Unitarian meeting, and Brown would minister in isolation from other clergy despite there being half a dozen other Unitarian churches in the city. Brown sadly would die, impoverished and underappreciated for his life's work, He lost much of his family for sake of his dedication to our singular theology. And it was this great irony that the decade after his death would be the high point, arguably the high point for Unitarian Universalist involvement in civil rights culminating with the marches in Selma in 1965. And Selma is what we look to when asked about the good work we've done in the world. And again, it is something to be proud of that we had more ministers in Selma than any other religion in both total numbers and certainly in percentage of our active clergy. It is something to be proud of that one of our ministers, Reverend James Reeb of Boston, sacrificed himself and his murder by white supremacists during the marches and that he became a symbol of martyrdom and white sacrifice for the cause of racial justice. We should be proud that Dr. King considered us one of his closest faith allies in the movement, that his widow Coretta would continue to correspond and worship with Unitarian Universalists for the rest of her life. But we should also recognize that just four short years after Selma, Our association, in conjunction with poor financial management, failed to provide the promised funding and support of African Americans in our movement and effectively alienated most of our members of color. The Black Empowerment Controversy, as it has come to be called, though it probably should be called the White Empowerment Controversy, was rife with the racial politics and white condescension we would hardly identify with church, let alone the Unitarian Universalist movement. The issue involved more than just money, of course, and also centered around the philosophy of caucusing by race. The prevailing position was that blacks within our faith, indeed any minority within our faith, had a right and obligation to meet amongst themselves and acknowledge and address the problems inherent and being black in a predominantly white church. Few people, however, both black and white, disagreed with this philosophy, claiming that it harkened back to the days of segregation and were vehemently opposed to any type of caucusing based on identity at all. The bitter dispute that ensued culminated with the association being unwilling and unable to fund the initiatives of black youths, and we have yet to recover from the laws. But as Mark Morrison-Reed points out, while we as a faith are usually a full generation ahead of the curve in terms of social change, spearheading or being at the forefront of the religious freedom, abolitionist, suffrage, civil rights, gay and lesbian rights, immigrants' rights, environmentalism and economic justice movements, our congregations are often a generation behind the status quo in terms of representation of diversity. While we rely heavily on the educated elite of this country to fill our pews on Sunday mornings, we often don't minister on campuses and often do not take up the cause of (coughs) open education. And though we speak greatly about the universality of love, and the obligation we have to serve all people, we often don't extend that love even to our own people of color who, like Ethelred Brown, are just as dedicated to our faith as any of us. Yes, though we have spent the last couple hundred years being, for the most part, flawed but well-intentioned white people, my hope for our faith is that in the next several hundred years, we will cease to just be the good white people. And by acknowledging our failures as well as our triumphs to start simply being good people. I'd like to close with a poem by uh, UU seminarian Kimberly Carlson, composed upon reading the story of Ethelred Brown while taking a course from our Morrison Reed at Newfoundland. It is entitled "Be Strong, Like Ethelred Brown." We forget that our faith ancestors were scorned more than Harold did. Those who stayed were strong, like Ethelred Brown. He was lit up by free faith and then let down. Like you, he felt a moral spiritual compulsion to be absolutely true, Ethelred wanted a chance to authentically choose. At almost every turn, he was refused. Stay strong, Reverend Egbert Ethelred Brown. When our faith breaks your heart, I hope you know it is only a matter of when and who. Human reason can kindly corrupt and be bigoted too ask yourself, what would Ethelred Brown do? Speak truth to power, serve the good, carry through, be strong like Ethelred Brown. Ethelred called on Unitarianism to be true, a universal faith for all, not just a few. Lost his sons, his wife, and three hometowns trying to build something new. When the chalice casts its shadow on you. Stay strong, like Reverend Egbert Ethelred Brown. Are you too radical, too dangerous, too persistent, too black to belong? Standing on the shoulders of giants who were also wronged, hold your ground. Remember Ethelred Brown. Fight for fair fellowship if our faith fails you. Be strong like Ethelred Brown. May it be so. Blessings be and honor.